everyone, and welcome to the Podcast Against Disease Special Humanity in the Plague Times miniseries. I am your host, Cody Weston, and I am here today with Ashley Hope. How are you doing, Ashley? All things considered, I'm doing okay. I mean, it's hard to say I'm doing great in this time period, but I'm making the best of what I can. Would you like to tell our listening public a little bit about what you do and how this has affected you? I'm a transgender woman. I was born assigned male at birth, and I transitioned about a decade ago. I started taking hormones and was very public and did a bunch of speaking and advocating and stuff like that for transgender rights and the rights of other people like myself. I've been living as me, as Ashley, for over a decade now. You know, most of my coworkers don't know until I tell them, but I am very open about it. So most of my coworkers do end up knowing. I feel like it's important to just be visible as a transgender woman. A lot of people are like, I don't know any other transgender women besides you. And I'm like, we probably do. You just don't know that they're trans. So I, I think it's a small thing I can do to try to be visible as much as I'm comfortable being so just to kind of normalize, you know, there are transgender people out there and we go through the same sort of stuff that everybody else does, the day-to-day monotony, the crazy, crazy quarantines, you know, we're, we're all in this kind of the same way together. And for myself, I just like to try to be open and I'm more comfortable when I can just kind of, not feel like I'm hiding parts of myself. So that's kind of another of the reasons why I like to be very public. So, Well, that makes a lot of sense. And I hope you're able to listen sometime to the episode that we recorded with uh, Dr. Kate McFarland about uh, transgender health. The, the whole idea of normalization and visibility really made a lot of sense when we talked about it. Things like these uh, pronoun visibility efforts, they seemed initially a little bit overkill because I I suppose the overwhelming majority of people, you can determine what their preferred pronouns are by their presentation. But realizing that for the few people for whom that makes a difference, it it takes so little effort to put that information out there and it shows a level of consideration. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so when I came out as trans in 2009, it was a very different world. The only reason it took me so long is because I didn't know there were transgender people until I got to college, and then I found that out and was, like, shocked. So things like putting your pronouns in your signature line helps to give, you know, that normalcy, that kind of, like, yes, there are people for whom this is not obvious, and not just transsexual people, but also any sort of gender-varying people, non-binary people, all of them can feel more welcomed. I've also found it encourages a lot of self-exploration when you actually have to think about what your pronouns are instead of just using what's assigned to you. And yes, for I think the vast majority of people, it's going to be the same, but still that thought exercise of being like, well, what pronouns do I want to use? And being like, well, male or well, female, you know, whatever, or non-binary pronouns. It encourages that self-exploration which continues to normalize what it's like to be transgender and also gives people something to relate to because 
You know, that's a, a journey that a transgender person may be like, what pronouns do I want to use? Oh my God, that's such a big thing. I don't know. This is crazy. You know, it kind of shares that experience. Mm-hmm. It helps not just the transgender folks who you're supporting, but even yourself, we should all be trying to learn more about ourselves, especially in this time where we have a lot of time sitting at home, just thinking about things. It's time to be thinking about yourself and what makes you happy and what do you need. So if putting a pronoun in your signature can encourage just this tiniest bit of self-growth. I think it's totally worth the uh, couple of seconds it might take you to have that. And it supports transgender people everywhere. When I was in college, I took a Native American studies course and learned about two spirits in Native American culture. That was the thing that made me know about trans people after I was like, oh, this is not just the people on Jerry Springer throwing high heels at each other. That that didn't look like me. I wasn't that. But when I read about how in very many non American or European countries, there are more than two genders. Like it is a pretty normal thing around the world to have three or four or five genders. And our current culture of only two is perhaps not the exception, but also not the only option just because we've only ever learned about this. In other cultures, they always grew up with three genders or four genders or five genders. And that varied from culture to culture, but learning that degree of normalcy, like, oh, I'm not a freak who needs to go on talk show TV. I'm I'm just a person who has a whole line of history of why I feel this way and why I am this way to a certain degree. And validation of like, yes, this is just part of the human experience is gender variance. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a very interesting phenomenon because of this huge crosstalk between social definition and whatever the biologic underpinnings of the phenomenon of gender actually are. As you say, it's it's something that varies so much from culture to culture. And I mean, the argument in the United States and in Western cultures has largely come down to the relationship between biology and gender. I wonder if it would be better to frame it as something like an aspect of personality that in a lot of cases tends to track with biologic sex, but by no means has to, because it seems like people definitely run the whole spectrum. I'm far from an expert at this point. I'm honored to have worked with the sex and gender clinic at Hopkins, which does some really great work. I'd like to plug the uh, episodes with Dr. McFarland and with uh, Dr. Berlin uh, after working with that clinic, I hope to share some of that information from the people with the public. Yeah, it, it is important in a broader sense to talk about, you know, sex as referring to the biological aspects, your primary sexual organs, your secondary sexual, you know, all those things, that's sex, that's mm-hmm. your body. And gender is a cultural concept of what men are like and what women are like. And that changes everywhere. And where those lines are changes everywhere, and then those lines get broken up into more sections and a lot of cultures where there are more than two genders. There's a lot of research as to why transsexual or transgender people are that way based on studies of the brain and stuff like that, but I I definitely am not well enough informed to talk about that in this area. But yeah, it's just an important distinction, the difference between gender and sex. 
it's fascinating because much like the cultural attitudes toward non-heteronormative sexual orientations, which I'd like to differentiate from gender identities, clearly, those have changed in the diagnostic and statistical manual that we use to assign illness labels in psychiatry. We've gone through phases where we considered homosexuality to be a disease. And then we figured out, wait a second, uh, if we just leave people alone and let them do what they want among consenting adults, then there actually is no disease. People can be just fine. And so something's gone from being an illness to not. And much the same way we have reclassified and reframed things like gender identity to say that, well, the real issue if someone is transgender is just that they're feeling this distressing dysphoria. And as far as we know, the only thing to be done about that is to allow someone to present in a way that feels right to them and let them live their life. So it's been interesting to study how that's changed. Yeah, that definitely is is interesting. And the, the biggest mental health problem that I feel like most transgender people experience is the overwhelming amount of bigotry and hate and transphobia, the just the general disgust. Uh, it is still legal in many states to claim that you killed somebody because you freaked out that they were trans. That is a law that is allowed a legal defense in our country is, well, I found out she was trans and it scared me, so I killed her. Uh, so that tells you where rights are and that tells you the pressure that a transgender person feels to know that we could be killed and us being trans is a justifiable reason why somebody will kill us. Yeah. Um, it's horrifying. Yeah. You know, there is a lot of dysphoria, which is the feeling of your gender identity, how you feel internally about your gender, not corresponding with your, your physical body and just the, the sensation of like, when I close my eyes and I look down, my body is like this. I have these parts. When I am not really conscious of my physical body, this is what I think I look like. And then you look in the mirror and you're like, oh, this is not, this is not that. And it's, it's not even something that you can do. You can't necessarily fix this yourself. You definitely need some sort of intervention in some cases, but it is the biggest problem that we face is definitely um, all of the transphobia and hate that's out there now. And because of that, I would say that the bigger need in therapy for transgender people is dealing with the hate than it is dealing with our own stuff. But that's maybe just a little of my personal experience. I'm not invalidating that. The dysphoria is incredibly hard, but the danger that transgender people face is very real and has a significant emotional impact. Yeah, and I can include some links on the Facebook and on the website after this episode comes out, but there's a lot of good uh, evidence out there on transgender mental health and how severely this bigotry affects people in terms of the suicide rate gets higher. The rate of violence is, of course, much higher. There's a lot of comorbidities that come not from being transgender, but from being treated a certain way because of one's gender identity. Yeah, there's a huge amount of depression. The, the percentage of 
transgender people who have tried to commit suicide when I did speaking in like 2012-ish was something like 40%. That's crazy. The unemployment rate is incredibly higher. The chance of being murdered just because you're trans, it is a scary thing to walk out the door sometimes being trans. There's also been a lot more acceptance in the past couple of years. Um, It's become a lot more normal and normalized to hear about transgender people. Um, the, The public eye really seems to be turning more sympathetic towards trans issues. The current administration has been horrible and literally... Some of their first actions were to attack transgender kids and remove rights from children and then also to attract transgender soldiers uh, and prevent people who want to serve this country from serving this country, which is one of the most absurd motions I've ever heard in my whole life. So this current administration has done a great deal of harm that will take a long time to repair but I still feel like the, the larger social arc is moving more and more towards acceptance and understanding and normalization. Um, and there are more and more visible trans people every day who are visible because, first off, they are incredibly brave to do so. But second off, because they are able to do so and still retain their jobs and still retain their houses and their families. Um, so there have been a lot of improvements, even if there have been a bunch of setbacks recently. Yeah. Yeah, and I can see where that would be really challenging. I, I'm sure the temptation is overwhelming in certain circumstances if you are uh, in a situation where people are gendering you according to your presentation and they don't know that you're transgendered. There's a lot of motivation, I imagine, to just not bring that up and let let well enough alone, even knowing that there's teachable moments there that could be lost. I mean, certainly... It's not trivial to balance that against putting yourself potentially in danger or having other consequences um, professionally, personally, et cetera. It, it feels like you're asking for a favor, especially early on, to be like, can you please use this pronoun for me? It's just something in our culture that feels such a big deal. Yeah. Um, and maybe this is, again, why putting the pronouns in your signature is so helpful because it normalizes that conversation around pronouns when you're first transitioning and maybe you don't look as nice as you would like to, uh, maybe you particularly are still feeling down on your appearance or like you're not quote unquote passing and it feels hard to, you know, bring up, can you use this pronoun? Mm -hmm. But also, as you mentioned, you know, I'm talking about with a friend, it's very hard with a friend to be like, Hey, I know you've known me as this person this whole time. Can you try these pronouns? But yeah, you're right. When you're talking about larger society, if somebody misgenders you and you have to correct them, that can easily spark a confrontation. And I do mean like all the way up to a physical confrontation solely for asking somebody to use the pronoun that you would prefer, all the way down to a funny look. Um, But there is real risk and danger. You can physically be putting yourself in danger if you try to advocate for yourself in some of these situations. So that's, that's incredibly hard. There's a teaching point in all of this about the importance of body positivity in general as well. This, this very concept of passing in my sort of observer's opinion is a little ridiculous because it implies that to be female, you have to look a certain way to be male. You have to look a certain way. And I mean, there are 
plenty of cisgender people who don't necessarily want to present in whatever the stereotypical way is. And that does not mean that misgendering them is okay any more than misgendering anybody else is okay. So it seems to me that this can be kind of a gateway to open a larger discussion. Women don't all have to look exactly like adult film stars or models, and men, <laughs> men don't all have to look like man walls and professional wrestlers and James Bond types. I want to kind of break down two pieces of what you said. The first being about passing, mm. and just for being explicit, if anybody hasn't heard of it, passing is an expression used in the trans community to imply that you can pass as the gender that you identify as. Mm. So for myself, I was born male, I transitioned to female. So there was a point where I went from not really, quote-unquote, passing as female, as in I would go out and mostly be gendered male, and that changed over time as I took hormones and other changes in my life to be more often gendered female. So I now more often will pass as female. And I say that with a great deal of hesitation because the concept of passing, in my personal opinion, is a toxic concept. Mm. Because just like you were saying, this is implying that there is a specific way that a man should be or a specific way that a woman should be. A man should not cry in public because that's not what a man does. Mm -hmm. And a woman should wear makeup and have long hair and wear pretty dresses. Yeah. Right? No. That is not a healthy way for our society to view gender. So I will often say that my fight for transgender rights is a man's right to cry and a woman's right not to wear makeup. Mm. It's all the same fight because what we're really doing is questioning where are the lines between man and woman in our culture, in our gender, you know, as we define gender in our culture. And we have these concepts that men are masculine and strong and they don't show emotions and women are feminine and pretty and wear dresses and cutesy. And that's not what society actually is. Mm. It's much more of a spectrum than it is a binary. So you'll hear the term gender binary as the traditional concept that there are men and there are women and, you know, the, the men go out and work and the women are barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's the concept of the gender binary. In reality, we have something that's more of a gender spectrum, where there are maybe two ends of very masculine behavior and very feminine behavior. Everybody is actually somewhere in the middle or somewhere along that spectrum, except there are people who are just like, "Eh, no, the spectrum is not me. I'm just going to go over here. For the most part, I would think the average person just imagine if gender was a line, where would you be on that line? That is questioning your your gender identity and your gender expression to kind of think of, how do I fit into those things? And it is not so clear-cut. Like, I see a lot of women who don't wear dresses and makeup every day, and that is absolutely okay. And I see, I have a lot of male friends who are very open with their feelings and compassionate and very loving in a lot of ways. So it really is not so simple as we like to define it sometimes. Gender is not really a binary. Mm -hmm. And passing very much implies that binary. So if you pass, then you are saying, well, I pass because I have long hair and I'm pretty and I wear makeup and so people think I'm a woman. It's like, well, that's not what being a woman is. It's not looking pretty and wearing makeup. It 
being a woman is much more complicated than that. Uh, so we should not use those ideas to define who we are. I kind of look at it more like signposts than I do a label branded on me or something like that. These are just kind of guidelines to help me figure out where I'm going on this crazy path. Mm-hmm. Uh, less so than these are the hard and die fast rules that everybody must follow. And that makes a lot of sense. I think that this idea of uh, of trying to shove people into boxes has got to be really hard for people who've spent time thinking about where they fall. I mean, suppose somebody feels they identify more closely with the gender opposite their birth assigned gender, and yet they don't necessarily want to be traditionally 100% feminine in all these ways, That's it seems like this presents a lot of extra hurdles. And yeah, exactly. And I feel like our culture has started to more accept masculine women or women who do not fit our traditional definitions of femininity. I feel like we are struggling much more to understand and accept male-identified people who are less masculine and take on more feminine attributes. There's a lot of heat that goes against people like that. But I do think that we are getting closer as a society to understanding and accepting these things. And that as we do, that's supremely helpful for, I think, everybody's mental health because everybody should be able to wear what they want, dress like they want, go out wearing what they want, make up how they want. This is all up to you. It shouldn't really matter what other people say. So I feel like transgender people sort of lead that charge a little bit because our very lives depend on this. There's a lot, uh, and I absolutely will not minimize the grief and pain that, for instance, a man who can't cry or a woman who has to wear makeup and a dress because that's the only thing her family will let her do, um, that's real pain, and that's that's not good. Uh, for transgender people in particular, the, the dysphoria, as we mentioned earlier, the incongruence between how you feel internally your body should be and how externally you are. That is incredibly hard to to do. And I I feel like most people can probably commiserate in a lot of ways. You know, there's probably something about your body or our bodies that we all want to change. Like, oh, I wish my stomach was a little flatter. I wish I was taller. I wish my boobs were bigger. Like, there's always something that people wish. But with this, with being transgender, the, the incongruence is so severe. It's not just one attribute. It is... It is everything. It is being born in a body that is totally alien to what internally you feel like you are. Or maybe not totally alien, but it feels like you're fighting against yourself a little bit mm-hmm. um, because you can keep building up in your head, like, I'll be okay. I am like this. I accept who I am. But then you look down and you see the things you can't change. Mm-hmm. I've been on hormones for 10 years. I have seen my skin change. I've, you know, breast has grown hips have grown and everything, but there are changes that will never happen. My Mm -hmm. shoulders will always be broad. Mm -hmm. My hips will always be narrower than a cisgender woman because my bone structure is narrower. You know, the facial features that I have, I can't get rid of. Uh, I guess I could get facial feminization surgery, which opens the door to um, surgery in general, but there are many things about being trans where you can always improve you can't change these things no matter what you do. Mm-hmm. And the feeling of being so mismatched with your body and looking down and having that painful reminder every single time you look at yourself or look in the mirror, it can be 
absolutely crushing and overwhelming. Even if you can take hormones, it will sometimes take between two and five years before you're really seeing changes in a way that maybe you can quote-unquote pass better or you can just kind of look in the mirror and feel even better about yourself. So I think it's something that many people can relate to, but that absolutely visceral, unchangeable fact that you were born in a body that is just incongruent with who you will feel like you are is sometimes incredibly crushing for a transgender person. Another thing I I would like to highlight about that that's come up a lot in the sex and gender clinic is that when we're children, there's not a lot of, we don't really have much in the way of secondary sex characteristics except for whatever genitals we have. But then going through the process of puberty, which is a difficult time for everyone, I can't imagine that the change is all moving in a direction that you don't want is at all easy to bear. Yeah, it's it's really hard to be hit. You know, if you get hit once, it hurts, and that that's hard. When you wake up every single day and you just feel like you're getting a punch in the gut because you see a little more facial stubble or uh, your hair is thinning or your breasts are growing too large to bind or your hips just can't be covered up with wide clothing, you feel like your body has betrayed you. And it's really easy for that feeling to turn into self-harm. When you look at your body as the enemy, it's incredibly easy to just want to hurt yourself. And that, unfortunately, is very common. That's why suicidality and suicide is is unfortunately high in the trans community because it, it feels like you're being betrayed. And, you know, we've all been betrayed by a friend, but to experience that from yourself every single day is so challenging. And even as you get a better grasp on it. Like I've, I've been doing this for quite a while and I feel like the day-to-day of it, I, I have a better hold of. But in relationships, it can be this toxic time bomb in a way mm-hmm. because you can't really love somebody completely, fully, totally, honestly, if you don't love yourself. And I know that is totally trope and trite, but in my opinion, I think there is a lot of truth to that. And being a transgender person to fully and totally love yourself is sometimes a challenge because you look down and you're like, but this isn't me. And it just can create a lot of strife in relationships Mm -hmm. and make it harder to be open and honest with your partners. Or if you were in a relationship before you either found out that you were trans or before it reached such a point where you just couldn't ignore it anymore. That's a lot of strain on any relationship to come out as trans. There are some amazing supportive partners who will be there for you. But at the same point, if you're dating a straight woman as a transgender, if you were born male and you're dating a straight woman and you transition to female, if she's straight and not interested in women, then like there's a certain degree of you can't really be mad at her if she doesn't want to continue the sexual relationship. In my opinion, I guess everybody is valid. Um, but in my opinion, if you're dating a trans or a straight woman and you come out as trans and they want to end that part of the relationship, it's kind of understandable, even if it is incredibly heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. But that also means that a lot of people who come out as trans end up losing their spouses, end up losing their family, because of the hatred that trans people face, there's it's sometimes incredibly hard to get custody as transgender parent. Mm-hmm. It's 
incredibly rough. But yeah, luckily there are people who have very supportive partners. Like I can't, I can't be upset at people for doing that. But at the same point, it's so crushing yeah. to feel like you're losing everything. Uh, not to mention the amount of homeless transgender kids there are yeah. because they come out to their parents and the parents are just not willing to even try accepting them. That maybe try to force them to not be themselves, and eventually you have to decide whether you can live in a lie hating yourself or if you just need to pursue your own happiness even if there introduces a lot of risks it is a sad reality that a lot of parents are not there for their children uh, when they really should be it is really sad to watch that unfold and i've i've been lucky to see a lot of kind of heartwarming cases where young people came into the clinic with their parents and were evaluated for taking the next steps in gender transition and their families were often very supportive. That's not something you can take for granted. That's for sure. Yes. Um, I feel like it's more and more normal to have that sort of response, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. Most certainly 10 years ago, uh, we lived in a very different world. Uh, I'm glad to see that there are improvements and that, that, again, is part of the reason why I enjoy having conversations with this, if there conversations like this. Uh, if you're a parent and your child wants to play with that, you know, toy truck or wants to play with the pretty Barbie, just let them. Let, let them explore that and see if that's for them so that they maybe don't have to spend 20 years of their life going down one path before realizing that they never wanted to be on this path and have to do a lot of hard work to find out who they are. So, yeah, I, I try to be visible to just kind of encourage parents to ask the questions and, and normalize the experience of transgender people so that if, you're, if your child ever comes to you and says they're trans, you can just be like, oh, okay, that's cool, because it's, it's just a part of the normal human experience. I do want to bring this back around to you know, WTF does this have to do with the plague times? And I just wanted to segue by saying that, of course, the standard of care for people who have gender dysphoria is to offer resources for gender affirming hormones, gender affirming procedures in some cases, and the specific path is unique to each person. Part of that for a lot of people is surgical adjustment of their chest or their uh, genitals. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for a lot of transgender people, eventually the, the dysphoria is so severe that even, you know, hormone intervention of taking hormone replacement therapy is just not quite enough to to really make you feel comfortable in your body. So there are surgical options available, which have been incredibly helpful, such as chest reductions for transmasculine individuals or facial feminization surgery for transfeminine individuals. But the surgery that I, in particular, um, was looking at is a vaginoplasty, uh, which is where they invert the penis and create a vaginal cavity with functional labia and a clitoris. Surgically, usually a plastic surgeon performs this procedure. Um, it is a very intense procedure, as you might imagine, with several hours under the knife, uh, followed by two full months of recovery, um, five days, five to eight days of which is spent in the hospital. 
in some perspectives, one of the most major steps that you can make. Um, there's a great deal of risk involved in the surgery, obviously, given the, the very invasive nature of it. Yeah. To a lot of transgender women like myself, it is seen as kind of that last major hurdle. Uh, I say that transition never ends. You're always transitioning. That's just my personal perspective. So I don't call this the end of my path. Uh, a lot of people are like, I'll get surgery and it's the end of my path. I just consider it another step along the way, but it is probably the most major step I have left in my life as far as my transition is to finally get bottom surgery, as I colloquially call it. So I had put this off for about 10 years. Uh, back in 2009, when I was first starting to transition, I had been asked several times, uh, you know, do you plan to get the surgery? And my response was always, there is so little chance that I will get the surgery in any amount of reasonable time that I'm not even allowing myself to consider whether or not it's an option. Hmm. Um, back then, uh, this surgery was not covered by insurance. Most people I knew who were getting the surgery would take a flight out to Thailand, get the surgery, and then come back to America for the post-care because we had better antibiotics and post-care treatment. Uh, and that sounded terrifying to me. I was not willing to do that. I yeah, couldn't, seems I couldn't travel across the country or across the world by myself for this. So I just put it off and I took all of that dysphoria and all of the feelings of, you know, looking between my legs and being literally disgusted and being like, this is, this is not who I am. This is, I, I cannot have sex in the way that my brain tells me I'm supposed to be. And if I close my eyes, I know exactly where everything should be and how everything should work. And then the sad reality is that that's not how it works in real life. And when I open my eyes, those things can't happen. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's crushing. You know, I've had problems with partners who have told me that it really upset them that I couldn't look them in the eyes during sex because I was so dysphoric and hating my body that the only way that I could do this was by closing my eyes and pretending. Mm. Uh, and that's, that's not a very healthy strategy for a relationship is to deny yourself feeling, but it was my only tactic. Uh, so I made, I made do with my, my route. And I was very lucky to have partners along the way who were very understanding and, you know, kind of made the best of a bad situation, I would say. Mm -hmm. But it was always, you know, the elephant in the room is just like, well, yeah, but this is what I want and you can't give it to me and I can't give it to me. I just have to live with the fact that this isn't something I'll have. Mm -hmm. Um, and that started to change a couple of years ago, uh, especially in the past two years where I've seen that my insurance does indeed cover surgery uh, and have gotten into a place where I am emotionally able to, to handle the major amount of risk that surgery introduces. So I think about a year ago, I finally picked a surgeon and I decided to go with a local surgeon. I live in Maryland and I was super excited to find that there are two different surgeons in this area who are performing surgery, uh, the specific vaginoplasty that I'm looking at. Uh, so I got to pick and I was amazed that I got to pick because I thought I would have to fly to Thailand. <laughs> so it was really great to feel that empowerment and to be like, all right, I get to pick who I like the best, who I think will do the best job. I had scheduled to have my surgery on May 6th of 2020. Okay. 
and I was preparing to take all of the steps necessary. There's there's a long procedure for the month prior to surgery where you need to stop certain hormones and certain medications because you are having a major invasive surgery, yeah. uh, and they want to do every single thing they can to give you the best chance of success. Um, so just before the COVID situation started to really escalate, I had finished purchasing all of the supplies that I would need for surgery because there are like dilators and pads and medical chocks and gloves and things like that that you need while you're recovering from surgery. Yeah. And I had taken, I had uh, called in and gotten disability approved for work and was planning to take off and my whole job was on board and supportive and willing to do whatever it took Mm -hmm. for me to get surgery. Um, And so it was like I was finally rounding the corner and seeing that finish line. Not that this is the end of my journey, but you know, you reach the finish line and you get to take a couple of breaths before you take your next race, you know? Um, So I was like, here comes that release. I've literally just taken all of these terrible feelings about myself and put them in a jar for 10 years. And now that surgery is here, I'm unpacking this jar, right? Because I had to, before I absolutely committed that I would do surgery, I had to unpack all of those repressed feelings and make sure, like, do I absolutely need this surgery in order to live the rest of my life? Mm-hmm. Could I really live a life without getting surgery. So I had to really think about that because there's a lot of risk. And there's also lifetime of maintenance that you have to always be on top of making sure that there are no problems post-surgery. I really gave a lot of thought to, could I live without this? And I decided, no, I I can't live without the surgery. Like the options here are I'll die on the table or I'm getting a surgery because I can't continue to live this way if I want to be able to truly love myself, if I want to be able to really be able to love somebody else fully, completely, and honestly, I cannot do so with the body that I have currently. It's it's not possible for me. So I've made that decision. I scheduled my surgery. I got all of the approvals and I decided I would you know, now that I've made this decision, I have to sit here and wait until surgery. My wait time, I, I had scheduled my surgery uh, probably eight months out. Mm-hmm. So I had to sit for eight months now that I had unpacked all of this emotion of like, yeah, I can't live without surgery, um, which I had repressed for so long. So I was getting ready for surgery. Mid-March rolled around. I had all of my supplies. And then the COVID situation uh, really started to escalate Mm -hmm. Um, because I knew, quote unquote, at that time I was having a surgery in two months. I took the most stringent precautions that I could. I have left my apartment one time in the past six weeks. I am just continuing to be as stringent as I can and diligent to make sure I don't get sick. Because if I get sick, I don't get surgery. Yeah. Um, so, you know, all of that was my thinking for the rest of March. But as April rolled around, it became apparent that this is not something where I, you know, me hiding in a room is going to be good enough. And I had a conversation with my surgeon 
April 6th, which was one month before I was supposed to have surgery. This was supposed to be our meeting in which I asked my very last questions, uh, and we talked about what exactly surgery would look for me, how long I'd be in the hospital, and other steps that, that was supposed to be this meeting. Instead, this conversation was about how the hospital was not allowed to do any elective procedures. Okay. So my surgery would not be happening on May 6th. My surgeon was very compassionate and knowledgeable and very positive that we could move the surgery out to summer. And he was confident that there would, there would be a very good chance that my surgery would happen. There was some unfortunateness that happened with the scheduling, but eventually my new date is now July 6th. Mm-hmm. So I have gone from feeling like I am rounding that corner about to get relief now that I'm just sitting in this toxicity, this this awfulness that I had bottled up for 10 years. And I was like, that's okay, I can sit with it because relief is right around the corner. That relief is not around the corner. That relief is is three months away instead of being one month away. And it's it's crushing. It It was so hard to hear that, even though I fully acknowledge that postponing the surgery is the right choice. If I were to have the surgery and then contract COVID, I have a lot of fears that the the coughing would jeopardize the stitches and I could end up having very major complications. And all of the hospitals are obviously very concerned about their bed, their surge capacity. Um, So it's, it's not something that they can do right now to have any elective surgeries. And even though my date is January or is, is scheduled for July 6th, at this point, I don't know that that's actually when it's going to happen. I'm sort of emotionally preparing myself for the reality that it's not like COVID is going to just magically disappear in July. There's still going to be a lot of risk and a lot of problem. And I... I don't have confidence that my surgery will actually happen. Um, so now I've gone from feeling like relief is just around the corner to not even knowing if there's a finish line anymore. You know, I don't think it's likely, but my surgery could be pushed out until we have a vaccine. I, I could be waiting for two years for this life-saving surgery. And, you know, it, I am very lucky that I have a very supportive care team and a lot of good friends checking in on me. But the feelings that seeing that finish line pushed off has evoked are incredibly vicious and, and painful. Like, I don't know that I have hope that this is going to get better anytime soon. And I just kind of have to live with the knowledge that I can't live with my body as it is. And there's nothing I can do at this point except sit here and know that I've reached the limit as far as how much I can just put up with this problem I've been putting in the closet for so many years. Uh, but also, I, I can't get surgery to fix it. I just have to live with it for however long it takes until I can get my surgery. And even when that happens, because of the situation... I have significantly increased risks, significantly increased chance of complications, and even the fact that I will need 
to stay with somebody for a month after surgery. You are not allowed to be alone because you cannot, you know, cook for yourself or clean for yourself. You can't go up and down the stairs. Even getting to the bathroom can be incredibly challenging for the first few weeks. Hmm. So now I will have to go to a hospital and stay there for a good long while, taking a bed away from a perhaps critical need. And then I have to go and introduce a great deal of risk to whoever will be willing to take me in after the surgery uh, in that I will be coming from a hospital and I will need constant supervision and physical contact to be able to stand up. There's no social distancing at that point. So it's, it is incredibly more complicated I think that the people who had offered to take care of me will still be able to, but I fear for the risk that I'm introducing to their family at the same point. If I can have surgery this July, I most certainly will do everything in my power to try to make it happen because I can't continue to live with this dysphoria. It has gotten so severe uh, at You know, random points I've had to take down mirrors and cover them up just so I don't have to be looking at that, which is odd for me because I've I've been in transition for 10 years. Um, I I do feel very blessed in that I see the effects of estrogen and I, I look in the mirror most of the time and see a beautiful woman. But right now, having seen my hope of getting this problem fixed, just crushed, has just destroyed my self-image and brought back all of those bad feelings that I had overcome, um, or at least started to overcome. And that's just kind of made even more horrible by the fact that I can't, I can't go out, you know, I can't dress up all pretty and and go to a, a bar or something and just flirt with people and have that positive reinforcement. You know, I don't, I don't have something like that or any options like that to kind of build myself back up. Not that it's about external validation, but I, I'm sure a lot of people can totally relate to the fact that if you are feeling down about yourself one day and you receive a compliment, it, it, it you know, it helps. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't do any of that. So instead, I have all of these negative emotions that I had packed away for a decade now unpacked and just kind of seething around and I also have no relief in sight or at least no strong confidence that there is relief coming and I just kind of have to sit in this emotion until we see more of what happens with COVID you know, maybe things will clear up a little bit in the summer and it will be possible for me to get the surgery but maybe it won't. If I can't come July, then, you know, I'll, I'll just have to find a way to get through that. But it is a very big challenge. Yeah, that's got to be really difficult to have that control taken away when certainly one could reasonably assume that it was going to remain on the table whenever you were ready to, to take that step. You know, I think I, I like a lot of people probably would, uh, you know, beat myself up for not being like, I could have, I could have just scheduled for surgery in January and then I wouldn't have this problem. But, you know, 
we can't change the past or the things that we wish we would have done if we had knowledge of what was coming. But yeah, that having that power ripped away and feeling so, so helpless and already like surgery is a pretty, dis- it's strange. Surgery is incredibly empowering and yet surgery is incredibly disempowering um, in that you, you're helpless for up to a month afterwards yeah. and you need to be taken care of. And yet it is this liberating and empowering step that brings your body into closer alignment with who you feel like you really are. And to, to be powerless about even having that process is really challenging. I really appreciate you being willing to share that with us. Cause I think this is the sort of thing that a lot of us, I mean, we're all dealing with COVID in our own ways, but this is something that I don't even think most of us would consider to be um, like a, a consequence of COVID that's on our minds. It's eye opening to understand what your experience has been. Thanks. I appreciate that. And uh, I, I think it's important to, to share this because, you know, a lot of people have said it's just two months and I kind of draw a comparison to some other quote unquote elective surgeries. You know, if you had something causing you enormous amounts of pain up your spine and there was an elective surgery to fix it and somebody told you, oh, we're going to put that off three months you're just going to have to sit in pain. Sorry. You know, that would be crushing for anybody, mm-hmm. you know? So it's, it's like that, but then mix in the dysphoria and mix in the cultural pressure to conform and mix in all of the emotions that you just kind of bottle up because you can't fix them. And it's just, it's um, an absolutely devastating experience to, to feel so helpless as your surgery is moved and to not, feel confident that it actually will happen in any sort of reasonable amount of time. You know, I feel like in a lot of ways, there's parts that a lot of people can relate to, to my journey, even if you're not transgender. But yeah, I I think it's important to, to highlight that this is a life-saving surgery. Pushing it out is a life-threatening risk, but I'm, again, lucky for all of the support that I have and the resilience I've built up over the years. I would say resilience is, a con- is an attribute that transgender people must possess in spades to even still be here today. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we'll get through this, but this is, this is incredibly hard. You know, on top of all of the fear that this pandemic is causing, now my, my journey that has been my whole life has been interrupted and this major, major victory has just been deferred. And it's, it's so hard to take. Uh, And I, I hope so much that when July comes around, um, there has been some relief. I'm able to get my surgery and, you know, recover from that without any complications. But, all of it adding up at once is, is a really big challenge. Well, I certainly hope that things go smoothly and that this deferment is the last. And it's it's tough to that there's no one anywhere who can really say for sure uh, what it's going to yeah. look like by then. Um, right, exactly. I mean, at least it's July, so if there's you know a chance of it, 
if there's any time that has a high chance of it happening, I would suspect July is probably right where we're looking at, July or August. But it also could not. It could easily change. So we we don't know what the future is going to look like. And if I have to keep moving the surgery date, I'm really worried because it represents such relief and such uh, growth and accomplishment and bringing my body into alignment with my mind and just making me feel like I can be in my body without so much discomfort and so much dysphoria. You know, all of these are super duper important and I really hope that there is a a chance that surgery will happen and I will be able to have that relief before too long, but I don't know if it will. Well, we're all going to be pulling for you and I really appreciate you being willing to to come on here and and talk about something that must be a really painful time for you. Um, Yeah. Well, thank you for for taking the time and for broadcasting this message because my thoughts are only as as, uh, strong as they are in my head until somebody else records them and does something with them. So thank you. Uh, And we'll get through this one day at a time. Yeah. Even if it's really, really, really hard. Yeah. And, you know, if you're... Uh, willing to come back later on, especially after things have uh, have all gone down, and if you have anything else you'd like to share with uh, with the public, would be happy to do a follow up because I think I imagine that a lot of people who hear this will be curious as to how it uh, played out, and will be hoping that that you're able to get this done in a timely fashion. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be more than happy to come back. I I very much hope that we're talking about uh, me coming back on in August for September because I had my surgery and I have recovered and I'm doing great. Mm-hmm. That is that is what I will try to manifest, uh, but I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, Ashley, thank you very much for coming on the show. I hope that, that the, I guess that July comes quickly and that there are no further delays for you. Thank you so much. And thanks for the time. I, I really appreciated it. Yeah. Thank you for coming on.